Spring training begins in two weeks. Here's a list of the players we'll be inviting to camp. I never heard of half of these guys, and the ones I do know are way past the prime. Most of these guys never had a prime. Obviously, it's time for some changes. This guy here is dead. Let's go. And coming from the basement of the basement, it's the sports cubicle. And Paul, you know, the weather here in Illinois might be, I don't want to say it's bad, but it's definitely colder than I'd like it to be. And that's why we don't hold spring training here in Illinois, but we also don't hold spring training really in the spring. If it's starting now, well, the pitchers and catchers reported this week, I should say. Yeah, I guess I never really thought about that. Spring isn't technically until March, about a month from now. And about a month from now, the Major League Baseball season is starting their regular season thereabouts. Ugh, lousy smarch weather. But when you look at some of these spring training teams as they report this week, you wonder who are the White Sox fielding this year. And then when you look on the north side, you think, can the Cubs do it this year? But that wasn't all that happened this week. Of course, we had a Super Bowl winner crowned last week in the Kansas City Chiefs, followed by just tragedy at the parade. And then we had Justin Fields news as well. And of course, Caitlin Clark making history. But also, we got to stuff our faces with one of Mike Mercado's good friends who brought some delicious barbecue. You fat bitch, Paul. Why do we got to do this again? All right, mommy and daddy need to have a discussion. So Mercado... Take it away. We keep things rolling here on the Sports Cubicle. I'm your host, Mike Mercado, and I am joined by on the road traveling to Indianapolis, Indiana, the one, the only, marvelous Dan Marver himself. And we are here to talk about the Chicago Cubs pitchers and catchers reporting spring training is here, which means baseball season is right around the corner. And marvelous, it has been a long time since you and I have been able to talk about the Chicago Cubs and all the moves they made since Craig Council has joined and become the new manager of the Northsiders. But they have made some interesting moves. They have not made moves that have been interesting in their own right. And I want to get your thoughts, everything from getting Michael Bush from the L.A. Dodgers to getting Shota, Imanaga, and Cody Bellinger not reporting. Marvelous. Your thoughts on the Chicago Cubs heading into spring training 2024. Well, I think they have more questions than answers. You mentioned some of the pieces that they added, but, the, but they, there's so many other questions like Bellinger and Alfonso. Are they going to get him? Are they going to get Chapman? I mean, third base. What are they? I mean, who's going to play third? Is it going to be... I mean, is it going to be wisdom? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, they, it, to me, you know, days before they report, it's kind of amazing that there's still so many questions. Even on the pitching staff, I mean, who's going to be the closer? I mean, it, there's lots, lots of things to talk about. And I think that by the, by the end of spring training, we will hopefully have more answers than we have questions. But now it's the opposite, don't you think? Yeah, it's interesting because I've had this conversation with Paulie off air talking about what Rob Manfred said about having December being the signing period for baseball moving forward and how now it just seems like a lot of GMs, a lot of owners, a lot of ball clubs are staring down and playing chicken with Scott Boris and his clients. And I think this is going to work out well for the Cubs. I don't think there's a lot of teams in the market for Cody Bellinger. I think Cody Bellinger is in a weird spot where there's a lot of good baseball left in him, but there's a lot of baseball you're going to be paying for that's not going to be premium baseball. It's going to be a lot of money that you're paying for average to below average to a lot of games missed because of injury, but you're paying for what you hope is a window in a World Series right now. I think we keep circling back, at least for me, keep circling back to the idea of the Cubs believe they should have won the NL Central last year. 
And the reason why they moved on from David Ross is because they believe he made decisions, whether it was in the bullpen, lineup construction, that he cost the team X amount of wins. And by bringing in Craig Council, he could take that type of roster that maybe isn't ballooned like it wasn't in Milwaukee, where it was around $80 million. And you had some star players, but you didn't have this crazy contracts on that roster. And you bring him in to maybe make up for what David Ross lacked in. So to me, it's not surprising that other than not signing Shohei Otani, which was the white whale, that they haven't been all that aggressive in trying to give Cody Bellinger all this money. I do find it interesting that we're still in a spot where we're trying to figure out who on this roster is flexible to be moved. And I think it has come down to Christopher Morrell. I like Christopher Morrell. If you've made the decision that he's just going to be the fourth outfielder, the fifth infielder, he's just going to be a guy that plays every everywhere and you want his bat out there. But if you have to move on and get a Pete Alonso or or somebody else that you think is going to take you over the top, you have to move on from some of these young players. That is the reason that you've invested so much in your farm system. So I think while they've answered a lot of questions, I think you nailed it on the head. There's a lot of questions still unanswered. And I wonder with the way that this offseason has gone and the subtractions of the other teams in the division, the NL Central hasn't gotten all that much better. If anything, Milwaukee has gotten worse after some of the moves they've made over the last few weeks. Where are you if we go into March and Cody Bellinger isn't a Cub, Pete Alonso isn't a Cub, Chapman isn't a Cub, that currently this roster is what it is. Do you feel okay with this team winning 88 games and the NL Central? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know if Pete Crow Armstrong is ready. And, and they do have a closer. I guess Neris will be their closer since so they picked them up for that reason. But they did have a closer last year until he got hurt. So these are things to be determined. But uh, yeah, the current roster as it stands, there's, there's, with, without any free agent signings, there would be that question at first base. I don't know if they're going to uh, have to settle for nervous, nervous. But uh, <laughs> uh, third base, I mean, if Morrell stays, he's either going to do that or DH, in my opinion, because the outfield corners are, are you know are set without question. With you know. With, and the shortstop set, so there's a lot of other, you know, with Suzuki and Hap, obviously, and shortstop with Swanson. So those are set, but some of these other spots are still uh, open to some question. Obviously, second base is set, too. So uh, it's just the corners and center field with some degree in catching. They seem to be okay now. They've, you know, they're, they're pretty much solidified what's going to go on there. You know, with the, with the twosome they've got, my end and, you know, and such. So um, I don't know. I mean... <laughs> Normally, at this point in time, you're able to analyze the team, but it's kind of difficult to at the moment because you know, you don't know exactly who's going to be there. And, I mean, Peter Armstrong didn't look that impressive offensively in September, but he's got definitely fielding skills. So uh, I guess he'd be your center fielder with the current roster, and then Morrell might be your third baseman. Who knows? So uh, it's just, uh, it's just a, a difficult thing to analyze. As you say, the division is not tremendous. I mean, I don't think that Pittsburgh's going to win the division. So, in Cincinnati, either. But, uh, you know, it's just a matter of whether the Cubs can uh, uh, fight off the Cardinals and the Brewers, it seems to me. And there's something to be said about the top free agents that are still out there, like Blake Snell. It's not just Cody Spellinger, right? Like, it's Blake Snell. It's Matt Chapman. It's it's even like Jordan Montgomery. There's guys out there, and it's no coincidence that a lot of those dudes are represented by Scott Boris, and it keeps circling back to that, that we're just in a time and place now where, you know, 
We got teams filing for bankruptcy and can't pay and loans. And we're in a weird place for Major League Baseball with everything that's going on with the athletics that the Cubs are in a unique position where we know they generate revenue. We know that they have a following. We know that they have a awesome pitching lab and they seem to develop talents and they have an eye for scouting the front office and future executives that rise amongst the ranks. And there's a lot to feel hopeful for and to put optimism in. But when you're still waiting here and you're seeing who's going to blink first as a fan on any team, but if specifically the Cubs, you can feel the frustration and the anxiety kind of building of, okay, well, what are you going to do now? Like, what is next? Like, this is this it? So what we were promised that there's a certain window or that you're going to be competitive or that's at least what the implications are. And if that's not the case, then what exactly is the point right now when the NL Central is there for the taking? This is the time if you're going to cement yourself and and build any type of dominance in the Central for a couple of years to have constant bites at the apple. We talk about it in sports, right? We know that there's variables that can determine certain sports, how far a team is going to go. Baseball in itself is weird. A a three-game sample, a five-game sample, a seven-game sample does not tell the story of a regular season. It's what we were talking about last year. The Major League Baseball 162 regular season is its own thing. That is why you have division champions. That's why you have wild cards. It is a brand new season when the postseason starts in October. And all you want to be is a team that's in there. One of those last teams playing baseball in October. Because that means anything can happen in a weird wild card situation, in a weird divisional series, in a weird championship series, in a weird world series. We saw it here in Chicago. Anything can happen. And as the years have gone on, especially yeah. with COVID, we have seen that happen. Right, Marvelous? And even the wild card of the series now, that's two out of three, so all three games at the higher seed, which is also another subject that irks me with full interleague play. I don't think you know, some of the rules are fair, but, you know, that's another story. But it goes I mean, into, I'm you really, have to take advantage I, of that, right? Yeah. You have to be able to take advantage right. of that right now if you're the Cubs. But I, I really I really have to give props to Horner for making that move to second base. I mean, he's been remarkable, all, you know, all through his short career. So, I, I mean, he's, he's solid up, they're solid up the middle. They can, you know, keep Bellinger in center or Armstrong develops. I just... The pitching staff, the starting staff, I mean, they, they definitely have the returning stud, you know, and such. But uh, I, I don't know what they do with a, with a fifth starter for sure. So there's still questions of the pitching staff, too. Look, at if you find a way to snag Shane Bieber or you find a way to get one of these veterans that's still hanging around there, you're able to make a, a nice little trade. You're not, you know, take, giving out the entire farm for a top of the rotation. But you're bringing in somebody who could be an anchor like a Kyle Hendricks that can bring along Imanaga in the major leagues. And you have Justin Steele. Like, there's a lot to like about the Cubs. And there's a lot to understand why if you're just being critical mind of it, right? If you're taking a bird's eye view of what the Cubs are doing this offseason, while maybe boring, They've made only smart moves. They haven't done anything to dig a hole from themselves. All they've done is position themselves in a place where they can make a big move. The problem is, is I still will contend, are you better than you were last year with or without Cody Bellinger? You saw what he meant with your team. You don't have Marcus Stroman, although not the greatest end of a second half, but was one of the best pitchers in the first half of last season. They have made a big change going into next season. So they do have questions that they need to answer. But I am confident, and I give them the benefit of the doubt, that they feel like they know what they're doing. 
that this isn't malicious, that this isn't them sitting on their hands, this isn't them trying to be cheap, that they're doing what they think is best, not only for the financial side, but the team that's on the field and the fan base. Marver, any final thoughts as we get ready for actual spring training games to come around and we're yeah. going to start hearing baseball hitting bats and gloves and, oh, spring is in the corner, my friend. You know, it's crazy. Um, I mean, I like, I like the way you're talking about the, you know, they know what they're doing. I mean, you sound like a, a longtime Cub fan, a Cub apologist, if you will. <laughs> they know what they're doing. So I hope you're right. But, you know, I've been more, I've, I've had more jaded years than you have. So I, I just feel like, um, you know, I hope they do the right thing. They don't have a playoff team at, as at, on their as their roster stands at this moment, in my opinion. So that's that's the key. What's going to happen? And you know, in spring training, you're going to see a lot of guys that are going to end up in Iowa anyway. So it's just a question of um, of, of how they can you know blend the roster to make it a winning team. And and you know, I I, I think they can. They're close, but there's still a few more nuts to put into the to the keg it's a good point it's only fair to say too that the arizona diamondbacks made a world series run and we've seen a lot of teams with this new wildcard teams in there that teams do make deep runs and also just like the atlanta braves a few years ago who knows how this cubs roster we don't know what it's going to look like in march let alone come august right so i think there's a lot of room for people to be critical and to want to see movement and for people to be optimistic. I, I think they've put themselves in an interesting position, but all you need to do is make sure you're in the final push come September, that you're in it in October. That's all you need to do. And we'll see if the Cubs are putting themselves in that position as spring training has finally arrived. That means spring is around the corner. Marvelous. Thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy all-star weekend. We'll talk to you next week as more Cubs news hopefully comes down the pipeline. And we hope each and every one of you joins us as we get ever so closely to Rangers Cubs opening night of the Major League Baseball season. Oh, my friends, it is a good time. Spring training starts at the first. It doesn't look too good. These guys don't look too good. I never heard of most of them. Who are these guys? So, Devin, did you hear that Rob Manfred is going to end his term as MLB commissioner after 2029? No, I did not, but I know that's one year before the White Sox had a lease on good old great ends. And that was another thing I was going to talk about was there seems to be more movement with the 78 development and Jerry Reinsdorf rumored to be asking for another handout with the city or the state to help get this done. One billion dollars. Not even Dr. Evil wanted that much. It's crazy. But Paul, I got a few new names for the new stadium if we get it. New Comiskey Park. The Jerry Reinsdome. And the Doctor Strange Love, or How I Learned to Stop Trying and Embrace Mediocracy Park. That's great. I like it. Um, it's that, That's a whole different discussion for another day, where that's going to end up. And I know we've talked about the 78 when that first started popping up about a month ago. But it seems interesting. We've set our thoughts on it. Um, you know, as, as more develops, we'll be on top of that. But pitchers and catchers reported to spring training this past week for both teams, including our Chicago White Sox. And this week, the rest of the players will report. And by the end of the week, next week, we'll be talking about how they've already started playing games in spring training. So it's moving along very quickly. But when you take a quick glance over this roster and you compare it to the last few years, 
there are a lot of new names on this list. It's not exclusively a big, uh, giant turnaround where there's nobody that we know on this roster. I mean, there's some usual suspects are back, like Aloy Jimenez, Yoan Moncada, uh, Luis Robert, uh, Andrew Benintendi, Andrew Vaughn, Gavin Sheets, but... A lot of new names on this list. Well, there's a lot of guys here who don't even have a profile picture on this list, Paul. It's the gray silhouette of a baseball player. Yeah. and It's if, crazy here. If, if you look at some of, uh, you know, and I know we have the sheets in front of us with the non-roster invitees, the 40-man roster, the depth chart. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, we, we talked about some of these moves in the offseason. You know, Nicky Lopez showing up, uh, Paul DeYoung. Um, but then you have guys with an outside shot of making the team that have major league experience. Guys like Kevin Pillar and uh, Mike Moustakis. And lo and behold, Danny Mendick's name has popped up back on the list. And I guess even though none of these names jump off the page at you and say, oh, this is a team that's going to compete for a playoff spot. It's at least something that gives you hope that maybe there's going to be a spark. Maybe there's going to be some depth. Maybe there's going to be accountability. Maybe these guys are a little bit more of a grinder type of ball player profile than what we've seen in the last couple of years. And and with the the sleepy Tony Larusa year of 2022 and the 2023 season, which was somehow worse than that, um, I am optimistic going into this year compared to those years. But honestly, Devin, I mean, w- without having my final projections done yet, I-, I see this team maybe being a 70 to 75 win team at best. I think it's hard to do worse than last year, Paul, and that's the only reason why I think they might not be as bad. But when you take a look at this damn team, it's if this is the team does better than the team that had, you know, big paychecks like Yasmani Grandal and Tim Anderson does better than the team when it had its star power, that's yeah. bleeping pathetic. Yeah, and, and it's weird that Tim Anderson has yet to find a home. I, I don't know what the market is. For him would have been, but when you see that, it's like, okay, so Paul DeYoung and Nicky Lopez are the guys that are replacing him at the position. I I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but I don't think any of them had a great season last year, Anderson, DeYoung, or Lopez. But if you told me I had to take a pick out of the three of them, who would I want as my shortstop? I'd want Tim Anderson. So it does make you wonder, why did they move on from Tim Anderson? You know, was, was he really that much of a problem in the clubhouse where... They wanted to move on from him because I'd never heard anything about his behavior where he was rubbing people the wrong way in his own locker room. But I do know that there was a bit of an attitude that uh, he presented, you know, the um, attention on himself. So I'm wondering if the organization was just like, you know, let's just cut our losses and not deal with the problem at all. Um, you know, like having having that sort of uh, uh, weight, gravity and attention placed upon them. Uh, just by having that player on the roster in general? Um, or is it really they projected him to be that bad going into the season? Because last year was kind of an off year for Anderson. Well, ever since 2019, and maybe even if you could say probably more 2021, Tim Anderson really started slipping here. And I was reading this article about how a lot of Scott Boris's clients have not yet to sign with the team, and here we are starting games in a week. Yeah, and we've seen this happen with free agency periods over the last few years. This this one's not not as bad as um, I recall one over the last few years that you know was like late into spring training when some big name players hadn't been signed. But but you're right. There there's a lot of Scott Boris clients. There's still some big name free agents. The Sox won't be in on any of them. But I just think. When when Chris Getz took over as the well, general manager, I wanted to say something, Paul. Why would we need to sign a guy like Cody Bellinger when we have 
Dominic Fletcher to play the outfield for us. Yeah, and Fletcher supposedly is supposed to be a grinder of a ball player. I mean, you know, I don't know if he projects to have anywhere close to the power numbers that Cody Bellinger would have, but uh, Fletcher seems like a strong uh, candidate to play right field. Supposed to be a better defensive player than Gavin Sheets. We get like keep in mind Gavin Sheets wasn't even developed as an outfielder in his entire career leading up to the White Sox. So they kind of had to just throw them there. And that was kind of one of my complaints last season about the White Sox and even during the La Russa era was certain guys were playing out of position. And and you just when you look at the diamond, it's like, okay, you're trying to squeeze bats in a lineup, but these bats aren't producing at the point where this even makes sense to really have that be the approach. But I think in the Rick Hahn, Kenny Williams you know, front office era, that was unfortunately what had to happen. I think in the Chris Getz era, what he's trying to do is create depth and defense going forward. And and you see it, but at the same time, I, I think when we look at the 2025 roster next year at spring training, there's probably going to be some even bigger overhaul to this in certain positional areas. You know, uh, look at like Yoan Mankata. I don't know. This is probably going to be his last season with the team. Um, I don't think Lopez is going to be the future at third base. I don't think Moustakis is going to be the future at third base. So I think that's going to look different a year from now. I, who knows? The, the young and Lopez might not even be on the team, you know, going forward. Who knows how long Andrew Vaughn would be at first base? And then for sure, you know, at catcher Martin Maldonado is getting on in age, not really that great offensively. Um, you know, just here to kind of be the uh, the guru, the mentor to, you know, Corey Lee, Cuero, Chucky Robinson, you know, some of the younger guys like that, Carlos Perez, um, you know, it, it's, and then of course, Max Stasi, who's also kind of in the similar, similar role as Martin Maldonado, but I'd imagine that it's going to be, if Maldonado's not getting the lion's share of the starts, which he shouldn't and he won't, it's probably going to be Stasi getting the most from Lee, or depending on who's hotter and who's healthier. But but I'd imagine it's going to be those two. But there's depth now at the catcher position where before it was like, sure, maybe Grandal, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was it was just kind of a just kind of a crapshoot. Zach Collins, you know, like they they had the approach in the last regime where it was get the offensive catcher. And you really saw how that affected them on the defensive side of things. And, and the White Sox really though they could use the offensive prowess, they do have some guys that when are good can really, you know, put some pop on the ball. And that's where I think, you know, Eloy Jimenez a designated hitter and uh, you know, where he belongs out of out of the the defense. And uh Louise Robert in center field, you know, with his bat, with those two bats in the lineup, you know, that's where your offense is supposed to be coming from. But with you know, with the catcher like uh Grandal in the past it you know it hit the bat wasn't there last season the the defense definitely wasn't there the entire time he was here um so i think now the approach is well we're going to sacrifice the catcher position different than we had before whereas before they just wanted the bat in the lineup so i do like the change in approach but at the same time it's like i think they went from one extreme to another I mean, it definitely just kind of feels like the most White Sox thing to do. And the fact that Grandal's already on a team and guys Tim like Anderson's Tim Anderson not. aren't, it's it's baffling to me. But just going over this, Paul Aceus, this kind of just seems like a huge... Ma- you know, I see names I recognize, but then it's like, 
It's just kind of a crapshoot here. Let's throw crap to the wall. There I can say go. crap, right, Paul? I don't know. They're throwing crap to the wall and seeing what sticks here. And just, you know, it's the way we're going right now. Just, it's, you know, what was the year the White Sox were the winning ugly White Sox, Paul? Was 1983. It? Yeah. And this kind of feels like the 2024, the just ugly White Sox in every way, shape, and form. We don't know who the names of half the team is. Well, we, we haven't even gotten to the pitchers. You know, Dil- Dylan Cease, who didn't have a strong season last year, is supposedly going to be the opening day starter unless he gets traded. And can we take a moment of silence for Dylan Cease? He got rid of the mustache, Paul. Let's see if it works. It's a full beard now. Oh, okay. I was going to say, if it was clean shaven, I'd say, let's see if that was holding them back. Uh, Michael Kopech slotting into the rotation where he hasn't really been efficient with his pitch counts to get deep into games. And not to mention, apparently he lost 30 pounds. People are treating him like he's Bobby Jenks. As long as he still has his, uh, you know, the physicality, I mean, he's a pretty strong thrower. So, I mean, I... I have faith in Kopech to still be a good pitcher in this league, but at the same time, I don't think he's a number two on a on a pitching staff, and that's where he slots, you know, as right now. You know, other guys, uh, you know, Tuki Toussaint, which I would have been thrilled about this five years ago, but he never really became the player he was supposed to be as a prospect. Um, it could be good though. I I did like him in his short time with the White Sox he had a few last year. Good outings, yeah. A few, few good outings. He, he good. did get rocked too. Yeah. Uh, Eric Fetty though is is another guy that you know. I okay, sure, you know. Um, you know, I think I saw Chris Flexen's name was was part of this list. That's another guy. He got rocked last year after having a few good seasons uh before that. Um, you know, John Brebia is the closer. What? Uh uh Tanner Banks, Prelander Baroa, Tim Hill. I'm excited about Tim Hill as like that weird sort of left-handed pitcher, but these are a lot of guys that it's like, wow, I don't know what you're expecting to get out of this pitching staff. And I agree, and I would not be surprised if we saw a guy like Garrett Crochet or Tanner Banks get moved into the starter role because, F it, what do we got to lose at this point? This team is just a dumpster fire. Well, I'm going, because the American League Central is so bad, I'm going to be optimistic going into the season. But I think, like I said at the top, this is like a 70 to 75 win team tops. I would be shocked. I would be shocked if they were like a 90 win playoff team. And, and, of course, that would have to um, involve, I think, certain guys having career years and some sort of, uh, you know, Colson Montgomery gets um, promoted from the minor leagues, um, you know, or you have uh, a trade brings in some players, um, you know, that, that kind of help get the ball, ball club clicking. But I, I just don't see it happening this year. And at the same time, I'm going to be satisfied with the product if I can only compare it to last season's club. Now, if this was the old schedule from three or four years ago before they changed it where they focus on mostly playing the AL Central, I might be a little more optimistic because uh, that in itself is a dumpster fire. God, remember when the AL Central was competitive and the way it was a good, it made sense why the White Sox always finished second or third? Right, this, yeah, a couple generations ago it feels like at this point. And now it's like, man, this, team's, this generation's terrible and they still can't walk away with it here. I definitely think they will finish in fourth place again, Paul Aceus. It just very much seems like that's where they're going to be. A team that has really, at this point, it's just guys playing for a job. That's it. Mm-hmm. Like, what is the biggest, like, what is the longest contract out of all these guys they signed? Uh, without seeing it in front of me, I would guess that it's probably Robert or Jimenez. Yeah, guys who have been there for a little bit. And guys who, you know, keep in mind, they signed, uh, I think, both of those players, exactly both those players, they gave them a major league contract before they ever played a major league game. You know, like a, a long term, like I, I believe it was like six or seven years at least for both of them. Um, but but that projected well. I mean, though they 
Jimenez more so than Robert didn't turn out to be the player that I think they expected him to be. They're both really good players. And I think overall it was a great investment when you consider how much teams are, are paying for, you know, the bigger name players in the whole league. You know, think about Cody Bellinger after what he did last year with the Cubs and what he's done, you know, being an MVP before in this league and playing at a high level with the Dodgers how big of a contract he's going to get. And the White Sox can't afford that. And nor should they go after that because I think that's just way too much that you're paying. And I don't get, I don't know if you get the value in return to help generate the wins. And, you know, it, it, it wouldn't, he wouldn't be the player that turns this entire roster around and they'd be paying a lot of money for it. Yeah. Cause he's only going to get three or four at bats a game. He, he could hit three home runs, but when your pitching staff gives up 16, it doesn't matter here. And just, you know, again, guys like Luis Robert, I'm kind of disappointed because everything I'm reading says he's going to have numbers worse than last year, which is kind of disappointing Is he had career year the first time the White, a White Sox player was in the home run derby in how many years, Paul? Yeah, uh, yeah, I can't remember. Uh, well, probably, uh, did Todd Frazier? Todd Frazier did it with the... That's I, Yeah, that's I think right. first year, but it was like he won it with the Reds in Cincinnati, and then I want to say a year later with the White Sox, he went to defend his crown. But before that, I, I, I Jermaine Die. I don't. I don't think Jermaine Die. He did, yeah. And uh, but Pittsburgh, it's it's weird. I had it. Um, so uh, Tubi has a live baseball channel. Okay. And I love going there sometimes just to see. Well, what are they playing on there? And they had the 2006 All Star Game home run derby. And there's Jermaine Die. And of course, if you remember who was the manager of the American League team in 2006, and how many White Sox players were on that roster that year? Didn't even play. Off the top of my head, it was like. Um, what Bobby Jenks, uh, Jose Contreras, AJ Prusinski, Paul Canerico, Jermaine Die. Um, I want to say there was maybe one Scott more. Scott make it last. I think. Well, he might have been the previous year, but either way, it's like you know, it's like that's like five right there. And I want to say there was Mark Burley, maybe you know. Um, but that that was uh, my. Uh, remember when? <laughs> remember when it used to be that good? Yes. And now we're doing things like, hey, Paul, I got a question for you. One of our former top prospects, Eloy Jimenez. Over or under starting 120 games this year? Under. He started exactly 120 last year. Really? With all the and this guy's like he's got glass bones. No, that's and paper that's about skin. right because that's missing what 42 games or not starting 42 games, and that was the most starts. You know, we keep thinking about uh, the year he hurt himself in spring training and didn't come back until later in the year, or when he like kept hurting himself, you know, running the bases or you know, gosh. I, I pray that he stays healthy. I'm glad that he's not projected to play in the outfield. But, yeah, I, I'm going to go under on 120. I have to agree with you. Um, Dude gets hurt, and this team hurts our feelings. This is the losing uh, – this is the ugly White Sox. All right. Well, before we wrap it up, let me ask you a couple uh, of the same types of questions. Uh, Louise Robert over under home runs at 33. He had 38 last year. He's predicted to hit 24 through MLB.com, which I think is disgusting. I think he's going to go over. I think so too. I, I I don't know why they would under project him, but I I don't know. Um, Yohan Moncada, will he hit above two seventy this year? Under under. I'm I'm hoping for a better year from him, but yeah, it's it's you know he's been here enough where it's really hard to be optimistic about what the season could look like where you think that he hasn't reached his potential yet. But I. I know he's a talented player, and I and I think this is going to be the year where he proves it. But I, I'm staking that on nothing. So, 
Well, that's the 2024 White Sox going into spring training. We're going to cover them throughout the month of February and March leading up to opening day. Hopefully they prove us wrong. Hopefully those games are enjoyable out in Arizona for anyone who's going or watching it on TV. Good luck to uh, John Schifrin, the new play-by-play guy for the Chicago White Sox. We'll probably be hearing him for the first time in a, in a few weeks calling a game. Um, it's going to be a different year, but at the same time, it's still this weird sort of purgatory that we have to live in as White Sox fans wondering if we're ever going to be good again. <gasps> That's the team. We keep things rolling here on the Sports Cubicle. I'm your host, Mike Mercado. I want to thank you so much for making us a part of your day. So I'm sure you have heard a bunch of different opinions, a bunch of different hot takes, a bunch of different nonsense and word salad about this past Super Bowl 58 as the San Francisco 49ers can't hold on to a 10-point lead and lose to the Kansas City Chiefs as Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid, Travis Kelsey win their third Super Bowl, their second straight, 25-22. to And it was a very slow, defensive, sloppy game the first two and a half three quarters and then the fourth quarter came around and the game really picked up because it had the most stakes right it's the Super Bowl the last game of the year that in itself is enough drama and when you have a close game it ramps it up to a 9 and a 10 and then we get to overtime where there are so many different storylines we could go from that point on and so many stories and pivot points and moments that we can point out in this year's Super Bowl and I'm sure you've heard a bunch of them over the last 48 hours so I'm going to give you my review of Super Super Bowl 58 and one minute or less starting right now. Brock Purdy going 23 for 38, 255 yards and one touchdown, avoiding the huge mistake through the air. Christian McCaffrey, 22 carries, 80 yards, also with eight receptions, 80 yards and a touchdown. I'm surprised they did not find more for George Kittle to do. I'm surprised they did not find more for Brandon Ayuk to do. I'm surprised they did not find more openings in the defense that Brock Purdy wasn't able to get the ball to them. And it definitely impacted the way the defense was out there for San Francisco for so long. And on the other side, Patrick Mahomes 34 for 46, 333 yards, two touchdowns, an interception, and an MVP. He also rushed for nine carries and 66 yards. 66 pivotal yards. Dangerous yards. Yards that changed the game. First downs that changed momentum. And sealed moments that were going to solidify a Super Bowl championship for him and the Kansas City Chiefs. Travis Kelsey nine receptions, 93 yards, with only one target in the first half. Ends up with 10 targets total, with nine receptions and 93 yards for Travis Kelsey and Mikel Hardman with the huge touchdown to win the game. But whether it was Kyle Shanahan deciding to receive the ball to start overtime, giving Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid, and the Kansas City Chiefs, allowing them to touch the ball last to determine how the game was going to end. How big of a mistake was that for Kyle Shanahan? Andy Reid not getting Travis Kelsey involved early in the game and Travis Kelsey having that big eruption on the sideline with Andy Reid. We can spotlight fumbling the ball, something he rarely does in the biggest stage or Pachenko doing the same thing on the opposite side and how that impacted the way the Kansas City Chiefs will run the ball the rest of the game. All these different storylines that played out after all the analysis, after all the speculation, after all the guessing, after every one of those moments happened in the game, it still came down to Patrick Mahomes getting the ball for the final drive of the game with the Super Bowl on the line and being perfect. Whether it was decision making or that crazy gutsy fourth down call. All we saw was Patrick Mahomes deliver time after time after time, not only solidifying himself in the history books of the NFL, but also making a definitive statement that whatever argument you have for another team playing against Kansas City, the counter will always be, but they don't have 
Patrick Mahomes. While we had a lot of fun breaking down Super Bowl 58, while we've had a lot of fun talking about what can happen now in the NFL draft with the Chicago Bears, while we've had a lot of fun about reminiscing of what has been a crazy Taylor Swift-filled NFL season, we'd be remiss if we didn't take a moment to talk about what happened during the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl 58 victory parade where 22 fans, individual citizens, free citizens in the United States, as they like to say, were wounded, one dead, as a dispute occurred that caused a shooting, a mass shooting. And this comes to us from ESPN. Police shooting at Chiefs Parade appears to stem from disputes. Authorities in Kansas City said Thursday that the mass shooting that left one person dead and 22 injured at Chiefs Super Bowl celebration appeared to have stemmed from a dispute among several people. Police Chief Stacy Graves said Thursday that the total number of victims is 23, including Lisa Lopez Galvin who was killed in the shooting. Graves said that 22 people injured in the shooting ranged between the ages of 8 and 47 years old and that half of the injured were under the age of 16. That's right, children. Children! Fire Chief Ross Grundison said the victims included eight critically hurt and seven in serious condition. An adult who had been detained has been released from custody. Police spokesperson Elena Gonzalez told multiple media outlets that leaves two juveniles detained. Quote, the two juveniles who are currently being held in custody while we work with the juvenile prosecutors to review investigative findings and determine applicable charges, Gonzalez said. Investigators are calling for witnesses, people with cell phone footage, and victims of the violence to call a dedicated hotline. Quote, we are working to determine the involvement of others, and it should be noted we have recovered several firearms. This incident is still a very active investigation, Graves said at a news conference. The Valentine's Day shooting outside Union Station occurred despite the presence of more than 800 police officers who were in the building and nearby, including on top of nearby structures, said Mayor Quinton Lucas, who attended with his wife and mother and ran for safety when the shots rang out. Lucas said he doesn't expect to cancel the upcoming St. Patrick's Day parade. And I also want to know all the stories that we're hearing of Kansas City Chiefs players helping people during this mass hysteria moment happening where people are running for their lives, Helping people and consoling people. And we've seen the footage of just regular citizens, civilians, bystanders stopping the gunman and holding him down. This isn't the first time that a sporting event, a sporting event that's a celebration of a championship has had moments like this. Just this past summer at the Denver Nuggets celebration, there were shots fired. It is no longer political. I'm not here to tell you how to feel one way or another. You've made up your mind if you're listening to this. Whatever side of the conversation you are in. But if you don't find it ridiculous that you can't go to a church, that you can't go to school, you can't go to a library, you can't go to the supermarket, you can't go to a bowling alley, you can't go to a Super Bowl parade, amongst all the other things, right? If that doesn't frustrate you on some level, I don't know what else will. And let's not get it twisted. These are decisions we make every voting season. Whatever your opinion is, doesn't matter. It doesn't even really matter my opinion or anybody's opinion here on the sports cubicle. The fact remains is this is an us problem and we need to fix it. We have to be better for the future generation. We have to be better for our children. We have to be better for the future. And we've seen through lobbyists and other organizations that spend a lot of money on all different types of politicians on both sides of the aisle, that is going to come down to you, me, your neighbor, your friend, the average person. We're the ones who are going to have to make a change. We should be able to feel safe and celebrate amongst our community. It's our responsibility. It's our duty. I started crying watching that video just because like, I'm, I'm just filled with so much gratitude and love and um, the way the fa- these fans support women's basketball is so much special. It's so special and 
Um, yeah, I mean, you all knew I was going to shoot a Logo 3 for the record. Come on now. We keep things rolling here on the Sports Cubicle. I'm your host, Mike Mercado. I want to thank you so much for making us a part of your day. And that was Iowa's Caitlin Clark after breaking the NCAA women's scoring record. And what a crazy couple of months it's been leading up to this moment. What a tour it's been seeing Caitlin Clark. And whenever she's leading her Iowa Hawkeyes to a visiting arena, you see how jam-packed they are. And you see the demographics of the audience and you see how early people are showing up and it was such a crazy ride. Let's get into it, how this all went down. This comes to us from ESPN. Clark came into number four Iowa's game against Michigan with 3,520 points, needing eight to break the mark previously set by Washington's Kelsey Plum at 3,527 from 2013 to 2017. Clark did it about as quickly as she possibly could. She got the ball off the opening tip and drove it in for a layup. Then she hit a deep three-pointer from her favorite spot in the court the left side, an even deeper three-pointer from the same side. One of Clark's signature shots from the logo produced pandemonium from the packed house at the Carver Hawkeye Arena. It took Clark just two minutes and 12 seconds to become the NCAA record holder. By the end of Iowa's 106-89 victory over the Wolverines, she had also best Megan Gustafson's school record of 48 points. Quote, I don't know if you can really script it any better, Clark said. Just to do it in this fashion, I'm very grateful, very thankful to be surrounded by so many people that have been my foundation. This was Clark's fourth career game, scoring 45 points or more, and she had 13 assists. In total, she scored or assisted on 79 of Iowa's 106 points. That's 74.5%. I think what's really going to be interesting about Caitlin Clark is going to be the transition to the WNBA, to the pros, and how NIL has impacted all this. She's going to make probably more money than she's ever going to make as a pro day-to-day in Iowa than she will, let's say, in the Indiana Fever. I think Caitlin Clark is a great example of can this person translate all that fandom from this game to the next women's college basketball is super popular it is a big watch it makes a lot of money especially nowadays where you see these ratings going up and these tv rights coming up and what it means and what she's meant and angel reese and all these different players over the last few years have really helped develop this sport to become as popular as it's been especially in this new era of sports fandom that we're seeing with this new generation of sports fan while celebrating this huge accomplishment that she's going to add on to as the season goes on. What would it mean for Caitlin Clark if Iowa goes on and wins a national championship? Goes on a deep run, a final four run, a national championship game run, wins the whole thing. Would she rather stay another year? And since she has another year of eligibility, would she want to stay in Iowa? And she's going to make so much money with the NIL deals and her being the record holder and depending on how this season ends for Iowa, is it a better financial decision to stay? into account too though indiana a basketball state what kind of impact would somebody like caitlin clark have in that economy for that fandom it would be really interesting to see how this plays out i also think it's a huge shout out this has been something you've seen a lot about conversations about her is that she has so many haters which means she has arrived she has hit mainstream she has hit the zeitgeist of sports fandom give her all her flowers and it's so great to see that she has options that she can make a decision that could be better for her future and it's not 
not just stranglehold to one decision, to one pipeline. So shout out to her, the new scoring leader in women's college basketball, Caitlin Clark, an absolute beast. It has been an absolute pleasure to see her take the sports world by storm. And it's going to be so interesting to see how this season plays out and what the future holds for the now record holding Caitlin Clark. We keep things rolling here on the Sports Cube Go. I'm your host, Mike Mercado. He's Paul Shivari. He's Devin Tingo. And we have ourselves a really fun segment here on the show. So I know a lot of people on Super Sunday, whenever there's a big event, like to gather with their people and like to feed their favorite humans on this planet. And they will go on YouTube, they'll go on Instagram, they'll go on TikTok, and they'll see some recipes or they'll see some spices and say, I can do that. And more often than not, it ends up okay to mid to mostly bad. But on today's show, we have somebody who not only was about it, became about it, and has done some great stuff with his own brand and some of the food he's making, and he brought us some delicious food. He's the one and only, he's Adam Coletta. Adam, welcome to the Sports Cubicle. How you doing, brother? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me. This is one of those cool conversations that we always have here where somebody found a dream, a, a hobby, something they were into, and they were able to not only make it something that they enjoy doing it, but able to make something with it, whether it was monetization, whether it was influence, or whether it was just living that dream of seeing something come to fruition. For you, when did that process start of making, you know, starting Coletta's Kitchen and then bringing out the Wiggle Butt barbecue sauce? I love it. Obviously, the logo is amazing and everybody go on social media and see where that started from. And I want people to do their rabbit hole work there. But where did this dream start off? Oh, man, I started, I guess I started cooking when I was about five years old, making mac and cheese and hot dogs. And I just love being in the kitchen. Then, man, that grew into grilling. And then I had a roommate, Malik, who started smoking meats. And man, smoking meats and grilling meats, uh, smoking meats is so much better. And so I wanted to be like my roommate at the time. So I started smoking meats. And uh, when I got my first smoker, my brother came over and he tried my first rack of ribs and he said, man, these ribs are amazing. He goes, but store-bought barbecue sauce, really? I took that as a challenge. And so I started creating my own barbecue sauce. And the funny thing is my wife didn't know I was doing it. And the first day that she came home, right when I was done, I'm like, you got to try this. And so I, she took a spoonful of it and she said, this is amazing cocktail sauce. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, so it was back to the drawing board. And after a few more tries, uh, we came up with uh, a few different kinds of barbecue sauces. Has it surprised you how much in, you know, social media has been around forever. I mean, it, it was around when, when I first met you back in the day, right? And like yep. now at this point, though, has is it surprised you how fast your exposure was to it? Gradually, you've worked really hard at it, but has it surprised you that you were able to get from concept to Ace Hardware shelves as, you know, shout out to you. It's It was a process. You know, I'm writing the children's book, Literature Dog, and it's taken a long time to get from concept to shelves. It's hard. Yeah. It's a long process. Process. Has it surprised you in this social media age that you were able to kind of get it out there and take inspiration to from other sources to get yourself to that next level? Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine just trying to do it without social media nowadays. I mean, I don't know how I could advertise. I could tell my story. It's amazing how people have done that in the past without that. What about popularity of sports? Do you think that has impact? Because we talk about all the time, like the correlation of, of when all rising ties raise ships, right? So like uh-huh. if sports are really popular, it tends to be group gatherings are going to be really popular. And that is that we're going to have these big moments and it's a chance for you to flex a little bit and be like, this is what I made for my people. Has that kind of been something you've correlated with it too? It's like, I know the second Sunday in February typically is going to be a big day for me to be able to show off my goods, you know? You know, that first half of the Super Bowl, uh, my buddy goes, at least we have good food today, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I took that as a compliment. I think they go, it goes hand in hand, you know, big party. You got to have good food with it. So you brought uh, barbecue sauce to put on the pulled pork that you brought for us today. 
Tell us a little bit about the barbecue sauce because it has this like kind of the consistency and the tanginess of like a Carolina barbecue sauce, but mm. kind of the boldness and the sweetness that you'd find in like a Kansas City barbecue sauce. Yeah. So I started competing a couple years ago and we started my favorite barbecue sauce of mine, which hopefully will come to store soon, is uh, my bourbon barbecue sauce. I'm a big mm. bourbon fan. But when we were competing, the judges kept saying, and we're in Kansas City competitions, they kept saying that these barbecue sauces tasted funny, you know, and so we would lose score points for that and one of the guys on my team was like well maybe we should go out and get a Kansas City style barbecue sauce and I said well, why don't I come up with a Kansas City style barbecue sauce? And over the winter, I worked on a Kansas City style barbecue sauce. And in our first competition, we took first in ribs out of 32 teams. So we figure we're on a good pace for that. That's great. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, what do you like to smoke your ribs with? What what types of woods? Well, for competition, we do uh, hickory and cherry, but I'm a big fan of oak. Okay. For when I'm cooking at home, I do a lot of oak. So, Adam, you said you tested out several different sauce types for your barbecue sauce. I'm just kind of curious. Is there any, you know, what some of the ingredients you tried that didn't work out so well? Or was there anything you put in there that was like, why would you even think to put this in a barbecue sauce? That's crazy. <laughs> but you're like, I'm daring today. So I'm just curious uh, what the process was for your sauce recipe to speak. I can't think of anything that daring that I've tried or, or, or crazy. I, I I think that like the boldest attempt was doing the bacon and bourbon together and making that. Being a fan of both bacon and bourbon can't can't go wrong. So what about for newbies, you know, that are trying to do this for first time? What is a meat that is typically a good first step for somebody? Is it shrimp? Is it chicken? Is it beef? Like what is if you want to start getting into cooking the right way and like making it something that isn't just putting on a pan? What is kids first into uh, the world of cooking like this? Pork shoulders, pork butts. It's real forgiving. It's really hard not to over season it. You can add a lot of seasoning. You can add a lot of barbecue sauce. You can be creative with with it and you're really not going to mess it up. So, you know, all these years that I've known you, Adam, it's crazy. We've always talked about sports, right? It was always about sports or pop culture, music, all this stuff. There's always been like kind of that analytical conversation that we all have here on the sports, you know, the sports cubicle or whenever you're talking to your boys or your friends about things like this and being in competition, I know you to be very competitive. Did you ever think that it was scratched that itch of being highly in a competitive? You're talking about Kansas City and you're talking about like capital of the world in, in that's your Super Bowl, you know, like you're playing playoff games, the equivalent of that. Like, how has that been for you? You, for somebody who is so competitive and who loves doing this and being able to merge those two worlds. Yeah. I mean, and you know, I I, I played uh, football for a long time. I just <laughs> retired from playing flag <laughs> yeah. football. That's how old I am now. Um, your hamstrings. The, the, thank you. Back. Your Achilles. Your yeah. Back. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this this does definitely scratches the itch. You know, the funny part is, is that you, you start like two in the morning often and you're going and you do your turn-ins at, at noon and then you stand around until like four in the afternoon waiting for the judges to make all their decisions. So there's no like there's no release. You don't get to uh, tackle anybody or, or hit that home run or anything. But once you finally get your scores table, yeah, man, it's a it's it's a huge rush. So what was that first win like? Like I could just imagine anything. Any of us win anything. You win a, the Super Bowl squares, you go crazy, let alone like a competition with real competition. How was that for you? That first First time you took first in show, first place, you were the, the king of that day. Yeah, so when we got our first place in ribs, it was against 32 other teams. My team was like, ah, you know, it would be a good showing. This is our second year, first competition of the year to doing a competition of top 15. We were like, we could do top 15, possibly top 10. And, and when they were doing it, this 10, 9, 8, and now I started, no Coletta's Kitchen, no Coletta's Kitchen, 5, 4, 3, 2, once they rec when they said two, I started walking away, and uh, 
And then they're like, and number one for ribs, Coletta's Kitchen. And I kept walking, and my team had to grab me <laughs> and, and, and bring me back. And they're like, hey, moron, that's you. Get up there. So, yeah, that was, that was man, that was a huge rush. I was shaking and super grateful. Got a great team of guys, and my wife is super supportive with doing this. So, yeah, it, it, yeah, it definitely scratches the itch. Adam Coletta joins us today here on the Sports Cubicle. I'm Mike Mercado. He's Paul Shivari. He's Devin Tingle. Check out Coletta's Kitchen. And I'm holding on to the barbecue sauce right now, wiggle butt BBQ sauce, and of course you have the wiggle butt rub, and this one I can't wait to try out. And what are some of the other products out right now, or something that you know is going to be down the line that you're super excited about? I know you mentioned it just a little while ago, but how much bigger do you want this to be? I mean, obviously we all have the big goals that we want, but like, how big do you want this to be? Do you want to be at the jewels here in yeah. Chicago? You know, yeah. like uh, for you personally, what are the goals? For I wouldn't be mad about it. So our first launch is the you know wiggle butt barbecue sauce and and the rub. And then we're doing Puppy Sweet and Big Dog Heat. Love that. Uh, a lot oh. of people are asking us for uh, a hot barbecue sauce, and we have it. We just uh, we need just to bring in a couple more bucks, and we'll be launching that. And then, like I mentioned, my favorite is the bourbon bacon, but it's kind of a niche barbecue sauce. You got to be a fan of bourbon, so we'll, we'll we'll launch that one last. So here on the Sports Cubicle, and if you're listening to this on Outreach Radio Chicago on WSBC 12:40 a.m. sister station of WCPT 820. There's a lot of people who would love to support local business, local passionate entrepreneurs. And what are some of the ways that people can support this venture, this team that you guys are doing? Where are the socials? What are the websites? Tag it all because I know people in Chicago are really would be really into this. Yeah, uh, ColettisKitchen.com. It's uh, K-A-L-E-T-A-S kitchen.com. You can get it on our website and we can ship it to you. If you are in the Yorkville or Oswego area, the Aces are, are stocking it on their shelves right now. And, and you know, we're, we're hustling and trying to get into more Ace around the Chicagoland area. Yeah, make sure you guys reach out if to your local area Ace Hardware or if there's a place, a local restaurant, grocery store that make sure they visit them, shout it out, say this is what you want, get some demand out there and let's uh, let's get this out to the public. Let's have as many people having it in their bellies. We had, we stuffed our faces here, the entire studio, bunch of animals, bunch of pigs and uh, it was amazing. Adam, uh, I'm so proud of you, brother. This is Thanks, amazing Mike. to see just this all come together. I'm so proud of you, man. And I can't wait to see how, how much bigger and when uh, Guy Fieri or Gordon Ramsay try it and they give it a 10 out of 10. I'm, I'm super proud of you, man. That would be the dream. That would yeah. be awesome. Thanks. We, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Sports Cubicle. For Devin Tingle, Mike Mercado, and Dan Marver, I am Paul Shavari. Thank you for listening. We are on WCPT 820 as well as 1240 AM at night. You can find us on Twitter at Sports Cubicle TV. You can find us on YouTube at the Sports Cubicle. So long, everybody. We will see you next week. Richard Chu starts your week.